Good morning, everybody. If you've been with us, we've been making our way through the night visions or dreams of the prophet Zechariah, and uh, in which he was shown symbolic images of the ways heaven will be meeting earth and God will be coming to redeem his people. And so far, we've seen the man among the myrtles in the first night vision, and the horn-crushing craftsman in the second night vision, and the man with the measuring line last week in the third night vision, and now this morning we're gonna see the royal reclother in the fourth night vision. And to understand these concepts of clothing and reclothing, we have to be familiar with the history of the Old Testament priesthood. So we are just gonna get right into it this morning. Buckle your seatbelts, here we go. All right, the history of the priesthood goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden where God created man in his image, Genesis 127. Theologians call this the imago dei, the image of God, and the idea is that mankind was uniquely created to represent and reflect God here on earth. And because mankind reflected God, Genesis chapter two verse 25 tells us that Adam and Eve were both naked and unashamed. Very interesting. Now, there's another important theological concept related to the Imago Dei called federal headship. And the idea is that while Adam and Eve were created equally in the image of God to reflect God, Adam was created uniquely and specifically to represent humanity as a whole. That's why when Adam sinned, the whole human race became infected with sin and the Imago Dei in man became disfigured. Still there, but not, no longer showing forth the same glory. And you might be thinking, wait a minute, what about Eve? She sinned too. In fact, I think she sinned first, yes. But who did God immediately come questioning? And who did God ultimately hold accountable? Adam, the representative head of both humanity and his wife. In fact, side note, I think, this is why, I think this is why the serpent came to Eve instead of Adam, to right from the get-go subtly subvert Adam's God-given role as humanity's representative. But anyways, Adam and Eve sin, and what happens next? They immediately find themselves hiding from God, naked and now unashamed, or ashamed. Very interesting. And so what do they do? They sew together fig leaves to clothe themselves, but they can only clothe their naked bodies. They can't clothe their naked, sin-stained souls. A sin which God said would surely lead to death. But instead of putting Adam and Eve to death, God graciously puts an animal to death in their place to make atonement for their sin and he fashions garments from the animal skin to clothe their nakedness which symbolically clothes the shame of their souls also. But even with this atonement clothing, their sin has only been temporally covered. And so Adam and Eve are forced to leave God's holy garden presence, and as John Milton put it, it was paradise lost for all humanity. And then God even stations cherubim, or cherubim, spiritual guardian creatures, and a flaming sword outside the Garden of Eden as a warning to anyone who might seek to intrude. But then, 
Fast forward in history a bit, and after the exodus from Egypt, we see God giving instructions to Moses for the building of the tabernacle, which would essentially house his holy presence among his covenant people, Israel. And we see God's establishment of the priesthood, and we see God's establishment of the sacrificial system. And it was here in this program that for the first time in the Bible, we see the convergence of these biblical motifs that first appeared in the garden, the Imago Dei. The high priests wore super ornate holy garments which were designed by God for glory and for beauty, Exodus chapter 28 verse two says, and they symbolized the restoration of the Imago Dei after its disfigurement in Eden. And federal headship, These priests were kind of like new Adams insofar as it was now their responsibility to represent Israel, this new covenant humanity. And in fact, on their holy garments, they even had these gemstones that they wore on their shoulder straps and breastplate, which were engraved with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So we might think of it this way. Built into the symbolically restored Amago Dei in the high priest's holy garments, was the names of God's people. Very interesting. And being symbolically reclothed in the Imago Dei, the high priests also now represented God. So the priests had this dual role of representing Israel before God and representing God before Israel. And atonement. There was now a formalized sacrificial system by which the priests would routinely shed the blood of animals to make atonement for and and symbolically cover the sins of God's people just as as God had done for Adam and Eve in the garden when he killed an animal in their place and covered them with its skins. And nakedness. Because of the sacrificial system which provided a symbolic uh, cleansing and atonement covering for God's people, they could at least temporally return to a state of unashamed nakedness, unashamed soul exposure before God as Adam and Eve had once known. And the divine presence. So while we couldn't return to God's holy garden presence, God in his grace made special provisions for his holy presence to come dwell among us in the tabernacle. And God's presence dwelt specifically in the innermost room of the tabernacle called the most holy place, which was separated and sealed off from the rest of the tabernacle by a very huge curtain embroidered with cherubim, which represented a familiar warning. But once a year on the day of atonement, one man, the high priest, would actually get to go inside. And there he'd perform various rituals and then at a certain point he'd take two goats and one goat would be slaughtered for a sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of Israel and the other goat he would lead outside where he'd lay its hand, his hands on it and confess the sins of the people over it and then send it away into the wilderness which symbolized Israel's sins being taken away. This goat was called the scapegoat and in effect it was banished from God's presence so that the people wouldn't have to be as they were in the garden. And this program lasted for hundreds of years, but it didn't last forever. And that's because there was a further and much better program and an even 
and, and even closer biblical motifs convergence point that would eventually come to God's people. And here in Zechariah's fourth night vision, it's kind of a pit stop on the way there where we get a glimpse into what that program would look like as we see a high priest named Joshua come face to face with the royal reclother. But before we find out what this is all about, let me pray for us. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning. Lord, I ask that like a piece of good art, this night vision would not just intrigue us, but it would move us. It would make us feel something. It would overcome us with the same emotion we had when we first beheld the glory of your son and the cross and your deep, unfathomable love for us, despite us. Lord, help me to preach this glorious word this morning. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn in it to Zechariah chapter three. Zechariah chapter three. And while you're turning there, uh, here's where we are in Old Testament history. There's been a split in the nation of Israel in 931 BC, which led to the formation of a southern kingdom called Judah. And there's been an exile in 586 BC where the people of Judah, the Judeans, were banished by God through Babylon from their land because of their sin. And there's been a return in 538 BC where the Judeans got to come back home from exile. And now it's 18 years after their return, it's 520 BC, and the high priest in Judah is Joshua. And now Zechariah receives this night vision from God. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I, Zachariah, said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So, this night vision unfolds in five parts. The accusation, verse one. The rebuke, verse two. 
the reclothing, verses three through five, the reinstatement, verses six and seven, and the revelation, verses eight through 10. So first, the accusation, verse one, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So here Zachariah is brought into the heavenly courtroom where we see Joshua standing before not an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord, who we've already seen in Zechariah's first night vision as the man among the myrtles, and third night vision last week as the man with the measuring line, and who, as we've already labored to prove before, is the pre-incarnate Christ. And here, he's further confirmed to be Christ because number one, he's shown to be presiding in judgment, and we know from several New Testament passages that Christ is the judge, Christ occupies the divine judgment seat. And number two, verse two, plainly calls him the Lord. So Joshua is standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And who else is there? Satan. And what is Satan doing? He's bringing accusations of sin against Joshua, which is fitting because the very name Satan means accuser or adversary, he's the adversarial accuser. And here he's pointing to Joshua's filthy garments, verse three, which which would have been absolutely shocking and unthinkable to see on a high priest. He's pointing to Joshua's filthy garments, probably saying, look at him, he's disgusting, he's filthy, condemn him. And of course, because Joshua is here representing Judah, Satan's really pointing out the sins of all God's people. But I want us to consider something here in all this, and that is that, yes, Satan hates God's people and wants to see them destroyed, but ultimately, everything Satan does is with an ultimate spite and hatred toward God himself. Remember the book of Job? In the book of Job, Satan again appears in the heavenly courtroom to bring an accusation of sin against one of God's people, except there he's not accusing Job of filth. He's accusing Job of fakery, saying Job is a faker. He just follows you because you bless him. Take away your blessings and he'll curse you to your face, God. But why does Satan even say that? Because God has initiated the conversation with Satan saying, hey Satan, have you considered my servant Job? a blameless and upright man who fears me and who turns away from evil, who turns away from the stuff you're all about? And Satan's response is basically, yeah, he doesn't really want you. He just wants your blessings. So your claim of Job's devotion is an empty lie. Satan's challenging God by calling him a liar And the rest of the book of Job is essentially a test of Satan's accusations, which in the end are proved to be the actual empty lies. And think about what's really happening here in the the book of Zechariah, in this night vision. Satan's in the heavenly courtroom, almost pretending to be some kind of cherub guardian, a protector of God's holy presence from the intrusion of unholiness, as if he really cared. And he's pointing to Joshua's filthy garments, and here's what I hear him really saying. How could a holy God ever tolerate this? If you really are holy as you say you are, you'll condemn this man and all those he represents. 
I think Satan's challenging God's holiness. And he's saying that he would probably make a better and more just judge than him. So ultimately, Satan's launching a two-pronged accusation. Your people are not holy, so you must not be holy, God. But then in verse two, we hear Christ's response, the rebuke. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? I love what one commentator says here. He says, in this rebuke, we can hear reverberating the primal, cursed are you, of Genesis chapter three, verse 14. So this commentator is pointing us back to the Garden of Eden where after the fall, God cursed the serpent. And then in the next verse, Genesis chapter three, verse 15, God continues the curse saying that one would come to crush the serpent's head, though his heel would be struck in the process. And theologians call this verse the proto-evangelium, the first evangel or the first gospel. It's the first place in the Bible that we learn that Christ is coming, which is really cool because Who's rebuking Satan here in this night vision? The serpent-slaying savior himself. So, this rebuke doesn't just silence Satan, it condemns him afresh, reminding him of the ancient curse and of his head crushing that was still to come, and which, because God is a poet, was upon a cross on a hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull. Also, notice what Christ says here about Jerusalem, which we know from the context is referring to not the place, but the people. Christ says that they have been chosen as a brand plucked from the fire. So God acknowledges that his people were in the fire. They were, as Ephesians chapter two says, dead in their trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following Satan, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And the thing that then got them out of the fire is the thing that now keeps them from going back into the fire, God's sovereign grace in their election and in their preservation. And then we see the reclothing, verses three through five. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I, Zachariah, said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Wow. What a scene. And let me me point out just three things here. The first thing is that Joshua and by extension Judah, they stood before the holy God of the universe, exposed, guilty, filthy, And God had every right to just condemn them and banish them from his presence, but he doesn't because when God makes someone alive who had been dead and frees someone who had been in bondage to Satan and adopts someone into his family who had been a child of wrath, he has no intention of letting them become orphaned and imprisoned and dead again, though they sin. And the second thing is that Joshua, and by extension, Judah, they do nothing to contribute to their reclothing. Only God in his grace could remove that filthy garment 
which symbolized the removal of their sin, and only God in his grace could reclothe Joshua with pure vestments, which symbolized the wiping clean of their record of wrongs and the reclothing of his righteousness and holiness and beauty. And the third thing is that Joshua, and by extension Judah, could be reclothed now because, by the royal reclother, because one day he would reclothe himself in that filthy, sin-stained garment. We'll talk about that more in a bit. But now, after being reclothed and cleared for duty, Joshua is reinstated as high priest. We see the reinstatement in verses six and seven. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. And so simply, now purified, sins forgiven, wrath removed, if Joshua will walk in God's ways and keep his charge, his instructions for how he ought to serve him, then God will allow him to keep serving as high priest. And then what Christ says next would have been absolutely shocking to Joshua. Christ relays a message through God the Father that points him and Joshua, who's observing all this, and us, who are reading this now, it points us all forward to something that is coming that Joshua and his fellow priests were a type of and a pointer to. We read the Revelation in verses eight through 10. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends, your fellow priests, who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will send my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So let me point out just three things here. First, God the Father through Christ says that Joshua and his fellow priests are types of and pointers to another servant priest to come, his servant, the branch. And the Bible uses this metaphorical branch language in the same way we still use it today to speak of of the offspring from a family tree. And there's a very specific reason here that his servant is not called a branch, but is called the capital B branch. Here's why. The prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah talked about how one day a branch would come forth from the stump of Jesse, who is David's father, and this branch would reign in righteousness over all the earth. And other passages tell us that his throne would be established forever. So somewhere down David's line, in David's family tree, another great king would come who would be an eternal king. And the opening genealogy in Matthew traces this family tree all the way down to who? Jesus, the son of David, a.k.a. the branch. So here in this night vision, Christ, speaking on behalf of the Father, is talking about his own coming as the eternal priest king. And second, God the Father through Christ talks about this stone 
he has set before Joshua with seven eyes and with an engraved inscription. And what in the world does that mean? Well, remember a few verses ago where Zechariah blurted out, oh, let them put a clean turban on Joshua's head. Well, he said that because he knew that part of the priest's outfit was a turban. And on the forehead of the turban was a golden gem-like plaque or seal. And Exodus chapter 28, verse 38 says that the priest would wear it so that basically when he, when he came to offer sacrifices, the Lord's eyes, the seven eyes of the sevenfold spirit of God, which is just a way of referring to the perfection of God's all-seeing vision, the Lord's eyes would fall upon it and thus he would be accepted, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless you've read Exodus chapter 28, verse 36, which, which says that this plaque seal was engraved with the words, holy to the Lord. So, for a priest to be adorned with this turban and golden plaque seal was to, in effect, declare him, and by extension, those who he represented, holy to the Lord, which helps us understand the next thing, the third thing God the Father through Christ says, which is that he would remove the iniquity of this land, which is to say his people, in a single day. And he says, on that day, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree, which is phraseology I only picked up on because I'm reading through First and Second Kings right now. And in First Kings chapter four, the narrator is reflecting upon the peaceful and prosperous reign of King David, saying things like, in verse 20, everybody ate and drank and was happy. In verse 25, Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. So here's what I think is happening in Zechariah. I think God the Father through Christ is pointing all of us forward to a day still to come where through the ministry of the eternal priest king of whom Joshua was a type, Sin will be removed from the people of God for good. And there will be a peace and prosperity and safety and gladness reminiscent of all the days of King Solomon. And so, ultimately, I think this points us forward once again to the paradise restoration to come when heaven meets earth. And that's Zechariah's fourth night vision. And so I think what Zechariah saw here was a dramatized glimpse into two things. Number one, what God's future program would look like. And number two, how through redemptive history we'd get there. And in the few minutes we have left, I wanna retrace those five biblical theme, uh, motifs that we looked at at the beginning of the sermon through this night vision into eternity, okay? So first, we start with the Imago Dei. The Imago Dei. And here in this night vision, we learn that the symbolic restoration of the Imago Dei in the high priest's holy garments was only symbolic because Joshua actually stood before Christ wearing as it were, the very visible and glory-lacking disfigured image. But one day, the royal reclother himself would clothe his deity with our humanity. 
He'd take on human flesh in the incarnation, which is what we celebrate every Christmas. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus, who is God, became a man. And as the sinless God-man, Jesus reflected the Imago Dei perfectly. And here's what Romans chapter eight, verse 29 says about us. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. Meaning, if you've trusted in Jesus for life and salvation, God's predestined plan for you is that you will look more and more like Jesus. And because Jesus is the perfect man, that means that as we become more and more like Jesus, we actually become more and more human. We become more and more what we are. And so here's an application I thought of. We ought to stop using the word human as a dirty word. That's what Satan does. Or the word human as an excuse for sin. What are we so fond of saying? I'm only human. I'm only human. Think about this. The problem with us is not our humanity. The problem with us is the sin and fallenness that keeps us from being as human as God intended. The problem is that we are not human enough. But through Jesus, we have the promise that one day we will be. One day we will be. And even now, God is beginning to restore that image by the Holy Spirit who produces fruit and righteousness and holiness within us and whose glory is being revealed through us. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse 18 says this. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Second, federal headship. Federal headship. In this night vision, I can imagine Satan accusing Joshua saying, what a lousy, pathetic, good-for-nothing representative you are. You're no better than Adam. And you know what? There may have been some truth there. One commentator says this, Satan is the father of lies, but he can also use damning truths to accuse, condemn, and ridicule the people of God. And here was the damning truth for Joshua. He was a sinner, just like everybody else. He needed someone to represent him before the holy God. And here's the good news. Joshua was a type of and pointer to the branch. And it's in this concept of federal headship that we learn why it was absolutely necessary for the branch to take on human flesh in the incarnation. It was because the first man, Adam, failed as our representative head. And it was God's plan for Christ to come and represent a new redeemed humanity as their new federal head. And so to represent humanity, Jesus had to become human. Right? I can't represent dogs because I'm not a dog. Jesus had to become a human to represent humans. And as a human, and as our new representative, Jesus submitted himself under the original covenant of works 
and the law and fulfilled it perfectly in our place through his sinless life and active obedience. And so, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 calls Christ the second Adam and the last Adam. And Romans chapter five says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will become righteous. And if we think about this in terms of Jesus' vine and branches uh, metaphor in John chapter 15, basically there are really only two family trees in history that matter. Humanity's tree in Adam and the new redeemed humanity's tree. In the second Adam, the branch who broke off from humanity's tree and was planted upon Golgotha and into which we through faith can be grafted, becoming branches of him. And so, an application here is this. We ought to recognize that every accusation of Satan against God's people is grounded in his pretending that history was frozen back in the garden and that our status is still in the first Adam. And that is not our family tree anymore. That is not who we're connected to. Here's what Hebrews chapter nine verse 15 says. Therefore he, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, a covenant of grace so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death, his substitutionary death, has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, the covenant of works. Third, atonement. Atonement. You know, the endless duty of the priests to spill more and more blood day after day after day, year after year after year raised the question, when will it end? How much blood will have to be spilled to fully and finally atone for sin? And the answer was, wrong question. Because it wasn't about the blood amount, it was about the blood type. Meaning, no animal No animal was really worthy to pay the price for a human being. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10 verse four even flat out says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to actually take away sin. So the Old Testament sacrificial system was only symbolic and temporary and cried out for an actual complete atonement for sin. And here's what Hebrews chapter nine, verse 26 says. He, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin as the great high priest over the house of God, Hebrews 4.14, by the sacrifice of himself, the spotless lamb of God who was slain, Revelation 3.13.8. Here's how this worked. Clothed in the Imago Dei, Our federal head, our priestly representative, Jesus, lived the perfect, sinless life that you and I ought to live before the holy God but cannot. 
And then, bearing the name of his people on his body, he went to the cross where he was clothed in our filthy rags of sin and shame and then died to take it away. And then he rose three days later to clothe his chosen, blood-bought people with the royal robe of his righteousness. And I thought of three applications here. Number one, we ought to lay down our fig leaves and hide behind the cross. We ought to lay down our fig leaves and hide behind the cross. These fig leaves could be our good works, our accomplishments, our successes, our position in the church, or any of the ways we fake it till we make it, we pretend we're someone we're not, in the world, in the church, on social media, all these things are fig leaves, false coverings, and God sees through them all. But when we hide behind the cross, Jesus works, and Jesus' accomplishments, and Jesus' successes, and Jesus' position, and Jesus' identity becomes our own. And that is something we can get behind. Number two, we ought not wear our sin and shame because Jesus already did. Listen, we ought not wear our sin and shame because Jesus already did. The accuser would love nothing more than for the people of God to think that their sin defines who they are. And I should add, that would include sin done against us as well. But Satan doesn't get to define who we are. And in fact, we don't even get to define who we are. Only the holy judge of the universe can define who we are. And here is what he says about those who are in Christ. They are loved. They are chosen. They are adopted, rescued, redeemed, accepted, forgiven, cleansed, purified, a new creation, set free from sin, holy to the Lord. That is who we are now. Period, end of story. And so Ephesians chapter 4, 24 and Colossians chapter 3, 10 tells us this, to put off the old self and put on the new, which is to say we should live into this new reality. Wear that, wear that identity. And the third application is this, we ought to trust the process. We ought to trust the process. Meaning, right now, this reality, all those great things I just said about who we are in Christ, this reality may not feel like it fits quite right because we still sin. But think about this. A child who wears his daddy's t-shirt to bed is fully covered yeah, it doesn't fit quite right, but it covers him totally. And one day, he will grow into it. <laughs> and the same thing goes for the righteousness of Christ. Yeah, it doesn't feel like it fits quite right, but that's not the point, is it? The point is that even so, it clothes us fully. Fourth, nakedness. Nakedness. Here in this night vision, Joshua, and by extension Judah, their souls were exposed, naked before the seven eyes of the all-seeing God. 
And it's interesting, reading the Bible, exposure and nakedness is almost always associated with shame and disgrace, except in two places, in the Garden of Eden before the fall and in the institution of marriage. And if you think about it, it makes sense that those are the two contexts in which nakedness and being fully known is not a shameful thing, but a beautiful thing. And here's some hope for the unmarried. In this, Ephesians chapter five tells us that there's a hidden meaning in marriage. And that is that it is a picture of Christ's relationship with his bride, the church. And there is so much that could be said here, but here's the point I wanna make. Christ has covenanted himself to his bride, the church, for better or for worse. Meaning, Jesus knows us fully. All of our flaws, all of our failures, everything. He sees it all, he knows us fully, and yet he loves us deeply. And so in application, to quote Hebrews chapter 4, 16, we ought to approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And here's what I'm getting at. I don't know about all of you, but there have been times in my life where I have sinned and it has immediately sent me running and hiding from God. And in those moments, I think, man, I really gotta clean up my life before I start praying to God again and reading the Bible again and going back to church as if, as if praying and reading the Bible and going to church were only for the people who are without sin. And here's the truth. First, we're all sinning and Jesus sees all. We cannot hide from him. And Jesus loves us deeply. He doesn't want us to hide from him. And Jesus is the only one who can help clean up our life. He doesn't want us to try to do it without him or without our brothers and sisters in Christ in, in, his, in his body, his bride, the church, this local congregation here for us. James tells us, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that you may receive healing. And lastly, the divine presence the divine presence. In 1 Kings chapter six, which talks about King Solomon's temple, it's interesting to me that the artistic, defeat, uh, the artistic features described there in the temple, they all hearken back to the Garden of Eden. The temple was full of carvings of cherubim and palm branches and blossoming flowers And so the intention was obviously to show the association between the divine presence and abundant life, which is ironic because all of these symbols in the temple of abundant life were carved into what? Stone and wood, things that are lifeless. But what's remarkable is that in the incarnation, the divine presence took on life. And here's what John chapter one, verse 14 says, and the word, Jesus Christ became flesh and dwelt, skenao, among us. The word literally means he tabernacled. Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us, meaning Jesus was the living, breathing temple presence of God. And then, 
On the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit was poured out and the divine presence then dwelt not just among us, but within us, meaning we became the living, breathing temple presence of God. We became the living, breathing temple presence of God. This is amazing. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, Paul says to the Corinthians. And so, question, are we just waiting for paradise to come? Or do we see that in Christ? There is a very real sense in which paradise is already here within us. In the beginning of the sermon, I briefly referenced John Milton and his epic poem written in 1667, Paradise Lost. And Paradise Lost is all about the fall of Adam and Eve and their banishment from the Garden of Eden. Paradise Lost. And then in 1671, he wrote a sequel to Paradise Lost called Paradise Regained. And what do you think Paradise Regained was all about? Heaven? The new creation to come? No. It was about what Jesus has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. For Milton, this was paradise regained for the people of God. You know what Jesus said in John chapter 10, 10? He said, the thief, Satan, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Question, have you experienced this abundant life? Has the presence of God within you become like a fruitful garden paradise? Despite your answer to that question, here's the application. We ought to draw near into the presence of God. Oh, we ought to draw near into the presence of God. And how do we draw near? Well, there are tons of ways, but let me give you one. It's my favorite one. Meditate on God's word. Meditate on God's word whereby he speaks to us. Psalm chapter one says this about the man who meditates on God's word day and night. He becomes like a tree planted by life-giving streams of water and he yields fruit in its season and his leaf does not wither and in whatever he does, he prospers. That is garden language. That is garden language. Question, are your leaves withering? Are you bearing fruit? Are you planted by the river whose streams make glad the city of God? Here's an astounding reality, and I'll just close with this. Because of Jesus, who like the scapegoat was cast out so that we might be brought near, we can enter into the most holy place, the garden presence of God, and just enjoy him. You and I can enter into the most holy place, the garden presence of God, and just enjoy him no sacrifices to be made, no rituals to do. We can just enter in and enjoy him there. Hebrews 
chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, encourages us today to enter in, saying, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And so, we began in the garden and then God's presence came into the tabernacle and temple and then God's presence dwelt among us in Jesus and now, reclothed in his righteousness, God's presence dwells within us. And yet, now, we, along with the people of God, do long for that day when faith will be made sight, when heaven meets earth, and God's temple presence permeates all of creation, just like it was in the beginning. And so I say to you, Behold, he is making all creation sing the song of his redemption. Jesus Christ will bring new life to all awaiting restoration. Will you stand to pray with me as we close our service in prayer? Lord God, until that day, I ask that you would teach our hearts what is holy and acceptable and pleasing to you in your sight. Lord, we thank you for the priesthood of all believers that that you have been pleased to give us charge over your house, your temple presence which is within us by your Holy Spirit. We thank you that we have access through the way, the truth, and the life, the royal reclother whose righteousness now covers us as a garment. What an astounding reality. Lord, I pray that we would be so astounded by that reality. And Lord, I ask that you would crush the enemy under your feet, that you would kill this sin within us which puts us on the run and into hiding and keeps us from the enjoyment of your presence where there is now no shame for the people of God. Lord, may we hide ourselves in you this day and find rest under the shadow of your wings for your glory alone. Amen.